0: for this Saturday morning to be found in your house to talk about a topic that is, Lord, just so relevant with so many people today. Yes. Lord, we we know that everything yes. today is is given to a title. People like to have a title behind them and to justify things sometimes, what they're doing and... Lord help us navigate the roads through the deconstruction of faith. And Lord, all of us at one time probably have have gone through a deconstruction in, in one way without even knowing it. So Lord, we know that it's not all bad. But Lord, search our hearts, our minds, educate us so that we could be better equipped that if we are dealing with someone who has been hurt by the church, that we can have words of comfort, ears of understanding behind that conversation. In Jesus' name, amen. Educate us, my man. I will do my best.
1: All right, I'm going to move a little closer if that's okay. Wow, this is, I sound like, this is great, man. Speakers are wonderful in this place. So I'll give you a little bit of context before we dive into the conversation that kind of helped shape why this has become an important conversation for me, and then hopefully uh, it'll connect with some of you. Uh, if you're like me, you know someone in your world who has deconstructed their faith. A friend, a family, a relative, somebody that you know, their kids, somebody that you're worried about. Uh, and so to say this conversation today isn't merely a conversation about data, We could have all the right strategies, conversations, research in the world, but if we don't think about in terms of spirituality that these are people we're praying for, people that we care about, um, then all that other stuff is meaningless. So I'm going to ask before we start, would you take a moment with me and uh, would you think of the person that uh, in your world has deconstructed their faith? We're going to pray for that person right now. That in this conversation, the Holy Spirit might illuminate us to think about better ways to have conversations with them. How do we better uh, address them in love and realize that this is not just winning the person's mental arguments over. It's the soul of a person who God has called for eternity. And we get the privilege of getting to pray for them right now. Yeah, so the idea of deconstruction and reconstruction, meaning that uh, everyone does this with concepts in their life. We take things apart. We identify why we believe what we believe. And we're finding more lately in this particular time and period, people are deconstructing their faith, taking the pieces of it. Why do I go to church? Why do I believe this thing about God? And instead of reconstructing them like we normally do, they're leaving the pieces on the table and walking away. And so uh, someone who's kind of navigated that in their own life. But let's pray and then we'll get into it. Lord, we thank you. Lord, this problem does not scare you. That Your spirit is enough to get us through a moment like this in history. God, your spirit is enough to to help us navigate these problems. God, thank you that you instruct us with wisdom and with love to navigate these situations. And so, God, I pray as we uh, have these conversations today, as we think about what does it mean to follow you in this particular season of life, help us to always yield to your spirit. Lord, for the ones that we're here for, With the friends, with the family, Lord, with the folks that used to be in ministry with us, used to sit alongside us at church and maybe have walked away, God, would you open doors for conversation once again? God, they probably don't even know that right now people are praying for them and for their soul right now. But God, I pray, would you begin to make inroads, open eyes, soften hearts, so that these conversations can go far and wide to bring people back to you. And so, God, we ask, not just for words, not just for wisdom, but God, to help us understand what your heart wants in this moment. So God, make a way where there seems to be no way. We trust you, we praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. So part of my particular interest in this is we minister in Boston every September 1st, 250,000 college students Move into our city and every so leases in Boston run September to August every single year. It's the wildest thing. A million and one U haul trucks driven by people who shouldn't be driving U haul trucks in the city every single year. And I've made it a point for the last three years to go to the city on September 1st because you meet people at the intersection of them coming into town. They're already beginning to ask who you are, what you're doing here. And we're finding for a lot of people when we introduce the conversation of faith. It's something they're allergic to or something that they had experience with and have walked away from. Um, So it's kind of near and dear to my heart. Let me give you some stats that will kind of help us understand the context, and then we're going to do some interactive dialogue. Uh, The data I'm using today comes from Tara Isabella Burton's book, Strange Rights. She's not a Christian author, but she's a sociologist who is giving us uh, the some of the data as to how the church is being viewed right now in our culture. I'm looking at some Pew research, Barner research, and the 2020 census on American religion. So if you want to access any of those, just let me know. I can email them to you. Uh, The book does have some language in it, though, so if that's a a turnoff, then I would recommend not getting it. I'll also ask that as you hear this information, realize it's not an indictment on any of us. This isn't, uh, as we hear this, uh, it's, maybe the better way to say it this way. If we don't get offended by the data that we're about to hear, if we put aside that initial reaction, because I know when I first heard it, I got really defensive and wanted to say, hey, but you're not understanding this correctly. You're not saying this right. There's a chance we can minister to the need that's beyond it. So I'm going to ask you to kind of ride that wave of initial offense and then hear the data that's coming behind and see what, uh, it'll maybe help us love them a little bit better. There's a moment in The Wizard of Oz, a classic film, where Dorothy is swept up into a tornado. Everything is in black and white. It's a wild moment. And then she explodes lands in the middle of Oz in a world full of color that is drastically different than the one in which she left. And she says this line that's been repeated time and time again. Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. Upon looking at the new landscape, she realizes that the way things are now are drastically different than the way things were before And this moment of clarity would inform the way that Dorothy would handle the unique experiences that she would face in Oz, that the things that needed to be conquered in Oz could not be conquered the same way they were conquered back in Kansas. So when she recognized that moment, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. It changed everything. I want to suggest to you that as a church, we're not in Kansas anymore, (laughs) That if these stats are true, if it really is uh, the way that people are looking at the church right now and Christianity and spirituality right now, then we're in a different moment right now. We can take some guesses as to why that's happening, but we've got to take this pause moment to recognize we're not in Kansas anymore. So for my first question, it's it's almost good to kind of feel the perceived part of this here. Where do you sense this already that we're not in Kansas anymore? I mean, the wild thing is... It's only been, I have been at a youth group, what's that, 2007, that's only 15 years, that's not that long, sounds long now that I'm saying it out loud though, but 15 years, um, it's not that long, but I can already look back at my tenure as a youth minister and looking back at how youth and see how, dr- that's only 15 years, so um, how have you experienced this since this in your own world? We're not in Kansas anymore, things are different. Yeah, so if you can look back to a time of church history, look back into a time of your own time in church, how do you feel like things are different now? Okay, anything in particular? I
2: was born and raised, born and raised in the church, basically. My Sunday was at 10 o'clock, I was in German service. At 2.30, I was in Sunday school. Then at 4.30 to 5, 6 o'clock, I sang at the hospital. I was back for choir practice at 6.30, 7.30. The evening service started. Got out of there at 10.30. Friday oh. night was, was was service. We were there. Monday night was prayer meeting. And uh, so that was my schedule. Today, if you get people in church for an hour, you're doing good.
1: Wow. Okay. So overall commitment to coming to the space feels like it's less. Wow.
2: Definitely.
3: The average person has no idea of the very basics of Christianity. Mm. Like I had a friend at school. This was about eight or so years ago that when we were talking after school one day, it was the whole group of us. And my friend said to me, she was a newer teacher, "Um, wasn't Jesus, like, burned on a cross? I'm like, no. And then my other friends were like, can you help her? Mm. But no clue of the very basics.
1: Yeah, so even the the narrative of Christianity is no longer familiar. Wow. So we're assuming that the culture in front of us, when we we tell them about Jesus, we have to start way back here. Yeah, that's interesting. Anybody else? Some perceived differences.
4: The things that used to be immoral, even to unbelievers, is now considered, if you're against it, you're the one being immoral.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah. So a sliding scale of immorality and it's intense. Yeah, we feel these things deeply, right? I mean, if anyone has had a conversation with anyone at this particular moment, you've sensed what that feels like in a real way. And so let me help paint the picture for a moment. I got one more. I'm just saying
2: that speaking to my own grandkids, mm. they're basically illiterate, spiritually mm. illiterate, biblically illiterate, in particular, biblically illiterate. Mm. They, they, they know who the baseball player is, but they don't know the books of the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's where we've done away with Sunday school. We've done away with Wednesday night. We've done away with Sunday night. What do you expect?
1: Mm. Yeah, we'll we'll tackle some of that stuff. But interesting to think through this conversation of uh, the main story that makes sense of our story collectively, the church, why we're here, what we do, what we do, why we do what we do. If that story isn't even available to somebody, then why would they connect to the other pieces of what we're doing? Yeah, big questions. Let me paint you the picture a little bit. This is a quote from Tara's book. She says, We are at the holy of holies for the religiously unaffiliated, the fastest growing religious demographic in America, the spiritual but not religious, the religious mix and matches, the theologically buy and try curious who attend Shabbat services but also do yoga and cleanse with sage but also sing Silent Night at Christmas time. The religious landscape in America is changing. And so if we want to be the most effective agents of gospel change in our community and culture, it's important to spend time to get to know what that looks like right now. Uh, So we're going to spend a few moments just getting acquainted with these ideas. What do they value in those kind of communities? And we're going to cover uh, three things. We're we're going to look at where we are. We're going to try to identify some trends in the data. And then we'll talk together about some possible adjustments we can make to think about the future. Um, So one stat disclaimer before we get into any of this. I know there's problems with stats especially when it comes to someone who says they identify as Christian, because that can mean a thousand and one different things, but kind of peel it back two layers and say that's the the least common denominator. This is someone who on a form has said, I identify as Christian. So um, here we go. Back in 2007, 15% of Americans called themselves religiously unaffiliated. By 2012, that number rose to 20% and up to 30% for adults who are under 30 Today, about 25% of adults in the U.S. are religiously unaffiliated. If you look at Pew Research's latest study, they say 27% of Americans are religiously unaffiliated. When you look at younger millennials, that's people born after 1990, that number jumps up to 40%. And this is a, that's a pre-COVID stat, so it's going to be a little bit interesting as we look forward to that. Here's what this looks like in the church. 2009, 41% of weddings took places in houses of worship. By 2017, that number dipped to 22%. Again, this is no slight. If you are married outside of a church, this is just one of the things that they navigated, that uh, moving it outside of the church context is interesting. 30% of Americans anticipate not having a religious funeral when they die. Barna Group found that 10 years ago, in 2011... Uh, 43% of Americans said they went to church every week. But by February 2020, that had dropped 14 points to 29% of Americans. And that was February 2020. You know what happened in March 2020. So before the pandemic, only 29% of Americans said they go to church every single week. Christianity Today, they published this uh, amazing article called Empty Pews Are an American Public Health Crisis. They said this note. When Americans describe the reason that they seldom or never attend church, scandals don't get top billing. Instead, people think of themselves people who think of themselves as Christian are more likely to say they practice their faith in other ways. It's forty-four percent. Or thirty-eight percent there's something I don't like about service, but that's everybody. <laughs> So this is where the data begins to get interesting. We're beginning to recognize that people aren't just leaving the faith. That they're not leaving faith altogether. We're not losing people to atheism. We're losing them to syncretism. Meaning they're saying, I, I, I'm not leaving this idea of loving God altogether. I'm just leaving the idea of the church. and I'm going to mix and match it with other different things. So it's a strange thing. They're, they're remembering core pieces of what this experience brought them. They're saying, I value that. I wish I could go back for that piece or I'll try and recreate a sense of that somewhere else but I'm going to mix it and match it with other components that I found viable for my spiritual life. Here's what it looks like in home. 72% of the spiritual but not religious folks believe in a higher power. That's 18% of all Americans uh, outside, that are outside of faith still, even though if they're spiritual but not religious, believe there's a higher power out there. 46% of the nuns, we're going to use that term here and there, say they talk to God or that higher power regularly. So you can be spiritual but not religious and 46% still have a prayer life with some sort of being that's out there. 13% of that number, they say that God talks back. 48% of those believe that a higher power has protected them in their life. 41% say that higher power has rewarded them. 28% say that higher power has punished them. 48% say they experience a sense of spiritual peace and well-being at least once a week. It's crazy. That number actually jumped by five percentage points between 2007 and 2014. It's crazy. We're not, seeing a, we're not seeing a shift away from the idea of God. We're seeing a shift away from the idea of the religious institution. But it's wild. The, the, this shift uh, hasn't just affected those who've walked away from the church. I, I'm going to venture a guess that it's also affected inside the church as well. We got these people, I like to call them religious hybrids. All right, this is where it gets a little squirrely, so come along for the ride. Pew Research defined a series of New Age beliefs. If you go to Barnes and Nobles and you look in the Christian section, this is one. Okay, I'm really weird for statistics and weird stuff. And I can remember going to the same Barnes and Noble over the course of time. And the Christian book section and the Judaism book section used to be like four to five shelves big. And at that same Barnes & Noble now, it's shrunk to two and a half shelves, and the self-help, the astrology, the spirituality section has grown, and that now takes up a lot more room. I don't know how to quantify that in data, but we're starting to recognize the, the desire of people to understand spirituality outside of the main things that are normally there it seems to be increasing. So Pew Research defined a series of New Age beliefs, astrology, reincarnation, psychics, and spiritual energy located in physical objects. They found that 60% of religiously unaffiliated people believed in at least one of these things. This is where it gets a little scary. They almost found an identical percentage in Christians as well. That of that list of astrology, reincarnation, everything, they found that 29% of Christians believe in reincarnation. I'm not a theologian, but... (laughs) I don't know if that is really compatible with the gospel at the core. And so I say all this to say that we're living in a world where people are more comfortable feeling uh, mixing, matching their religious beliefs to suit their present need. We're not losing them to atheism. We're losing them to syncretism. One-third of Americans say they've attended worship services in different houses of worship. One-eighth of Americans say that their life has been influenced by Buddhism, and only 1% of Americans identify as Buddhists. There's this book I stumbled on in seminary. In 2009, it was written. uh, The title is, Without Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. (laughs) Harvard Divinity, they they call this unbundling, where we're taking apart. It's a different side of deconstruction, where we're not just taking things apart, but we're taking pieces apart and then bundling them with something else. Three-fourths of millennials agree with this statement. Whatever is right for your life and works best for you is the only truth you can know, compared to 39% of generations above millennials. So we're beginning to feel just the shift in that direction, but if the data still trends in the same direction a generation from now, there's a chance that the generations that come after, if they're influenced by three fourths who think your truth is your truth no matter what, it's going to get pretty interesting. 47% of practicing Christians of all ages agree with that same statement. Whatever truth is good for you is the only truth you can know. It's big data. Um, so that's kind of the, big, the, the first part of the, the landscape. So let me pause there for a moment and give chance for reflection and comment and response. Does that data seem to track with conversations that you've had? In what ways does it seem to make sense? and what way does it not make sense?
0: Yes, by all means. And I'm wondering if a lot of it is due to the access of the internet today, where I talk to more people who listen to this podcast, will listen to this preacher, will listen to this, all different um, religious backgrounds, and they rebundle everything they have learned into a theology of their own. So I'm just wondering, would you agree that the access to the internet? Availability to all different types of religion, people listen to, then rebundle it into a mixed-up theology.
1: Yeah, Larry and I were talking about uh, we're in this unique moment when the printing when the printing press came out, the first King James Bible we get is sixteen eleven. By the time the King James Bible makes its way into the home that you didn't have just a church Bible or a family Bible, we're looking at two hundred years of time to process the biggest revolution in technology. With the coming of the smartphone between 2007, the first iPhone came out to where we are now. It's been less than 20 years. And the biggest piece of technology that has shaped human existence is here. We've only had 20 years to really process its effects on humanity. Um, So I say all that to say, yeah, I I can remember as a youth student, pre-internet being really accessible, going to Pastor John and asking questions about spirituality and theology. And now I find when in ministry... People go on YouTube, and just because someone's video is cooler than what I can put out, it gains more respect, traction, accessibility, and uh, and I'm finding that I've got to compete with people who don't necessarily have better education training, have thought it through more, they've just got to better produce video. And so, yeah, I think with the accessibility of all sorts of kind of... So, again, it makes me think about um, our ministry with people isn't we're no longer the the depository of truth that we can share to people we have to teach people how to evaluate data it's a skill set that we've got to begin equipping people with and the people in our care to say i can't just tell you what the answers are i don't have to tell you how to discern amongst the hundred answers you're going to find yourself in um and so even in our in our youth ministry that was a real big thing that we were trying to do is help students discern wisdom like what does it mean when you come up against 100 videos that sound really good? How do you ride the wave of the emotion that new data is true data because it's not always true and then walk through the process of, uh, of challenging that? So yeah, I would say that's definitely.
5: I have a thought I'm going to try to express. Hopefully it comes across. I'm here for the, the... ride. Um, <laughs> the generation I belong to tends to speak truth like it's the only authority and the only thing out there. And when you do that, you get nothing but a wall that you're speaking to. Mm. Uh, And I really believe that uh, the power of Google has done away with the authoritative voice of truth.
1: Mm. Yeah, right? I think I remember when I was a kid, the arguments of like me and my friends on the bus get an argument, hey man. Who threw the first touchdown in this football game? And you go back and forth for an hour just arguing about it. The only thing you could do is go back to the library and go see if there was a book that recorded it. But now we're in this world where you pull up the Google right away. And so that sense of having to wait for data, I mean, often we forgot by the time it was time to really think about it. But that um, I think hair trigger response to know that I can access data right here immediately maybe has a psychological effect on us over time.
4: Yeah, so I definitely think that the data, you know, definitely falls through with our experience as well. And I agree with um, what you guys are saying too about the internet. And I think like how it used to be that um, your pastor or somebody in church, like you gave the example, that you would go to them for truth or for authority. But now I think the perspective is that they're going to tell me what they need to tell me because that's their job as they represent that institution. Mm -hmm. And so I think – Like what you said was really good, we need to help people with critical thinking because why is what somebody says on YouTube more authoritative? It's not. It's just something I haven't heard in church before, Mm -hmm. and it sounds good. And I'm not being taught by my church or by my parents or somebody how to think critically. I'm just told what I should think. And I think that can be sometimes maybe the younger perspective why there may feel to be like a wall. Hey, well, this is what we believe. Um, instead of well, here's why, or or yeah, you watch that on YouTube. Well, how do they know that? Or why did they, why did they say that? How do you know that that's true? Just because you watch it on a YouTube video? I think that's what's missing in um, you know our our thinking.
1: Yeah, and, and it's strange too because you think about like uh, this isn't a knock on the schools I went to or anything like that, but it's just it's a new skill set. I mean, it's we are. It's a different way of training your brain to think about equipping people that it's just a hard a hard thing to
2: figure out. Data and experience. The experiences that we have as Christians, my own experiences, which I look back upon. I can find somebody that can out- out-debate me, but they can never take away my experience of divine mm-hmm. healing, baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, and the walk in the supernatural. Where we could say God walks with me and talks with me. Those experiences are the things that I think are so very important, and a lot of people don't have them anymore. They have head knowledge, but not heart knowledge. Mm. They have not experienced the supernatural. The early church was built on supernatural, Mm. divine healing, divine healing, supernatural ministry. ministry. And that is what grew the church. Today, I think we lean more about on our experiences and our understanding and our education, which is good. There's nothing wrong with that. But it cannot... supersede the exp- your experience with God. Do you know him? Mm. Does he talk with you? Does he walk with you? That is the difference because you have a lot of good arguments out there, yeah. but they cannot take away something. I know that I know that. How do I know divine healing? I've been healed. My, my father had a supernatural healing. My, my sister, my, my brothers and so forth in the family. So these are the things that make the difference. That's a, a foundation or an anchor. Mm in the faith I said, well, yeah maybe you could out talk me you could, you could, you're a better debater than I am mm. but I know what I've experienced yeah
1: which I think we'll get there I think that's why I think the church is the answer and we'll, we'll get there in a bit but yeah thanks for sharing that
2: yeah just to get back to uh, what we were talking about as far as YouTube and Google mm-hmm. and all that I you know and I spend I spend time going through all that stuff but one thing that's critical I think and a lot of people don't bother to check the source and the reliability of the source and all the rest of that you know is Where is this guy or this person getting their information from? What are his qualifications? You know, uh, before you even consider believing it, you know, and sharing it to any extent. So, and I find you find that a lot of people don't. You know, they like it and fine, but you know, what what are what are this guy's qualifications for making those statements? What is he based on, and so on and so forth? So, yeah, how do we? It's just a thought.
1: It's a strange world to be at a place where uh, (laughs) I jokingly say, like my my parents told me, like, hey, don't don't. Trust strangers right away, right? Like we always told, we tell our kids beware of strangers, and now we're like, no, take the information from a stranger on the internet and believe it right away. Take their advice, and uh, it's a strange thing. Bonnie, I think I saw you back there. Uh,
6: no, just where we're talking about <clears throat> about you know people not going to pastors as the authority anymore, but going online um, reminds me all I can think about is how we tend to go to like WebMD to diagnose our medical problems, nice. and usually we end up. Way worse mentally. Like
1: I'm, dying, I'm and, dying. And we're
6: wrong. And we're, rather than go to an actual doctor who knows what they're doing and who's wow. gone to school for this, you know. Um, so, you know, same thing. I guess if if you're having a conversation with a person, like, oh yeah, I found the answer online. Oh, oh do you find all your medical advice on WebMD Web too? But um, and also the scripture came to mind. First Peter three fifteen. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a mm. reason for the hope that is in you. Um, yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having mm. a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame.
1: Wow. That's a timely, timely word. Yeah, right? To think that's... Wow. and Maybe it helps us realize it's not a, this isn't a necessarily new problem, but it's something that... Yeah. Let me give us some guesses as to why it's happening, and then we'll continue the conversation. So like you guys have pointed out, the religiously remixed, the people who are mixing and matching, they've been shaped by the Internet revolution that has made consumerism a stronger force than it was before. So again, we were already dealing with that earlier, but now having the ad revolution, the way that marketing is done now, it kind of targets Christianity in the same way. Uh, Tara wrote this line. She said, If Protestantism is the religion of the printed book, then the remixed religions are the religions of the Internet. If the internet has taught us anything, it's that if you want to have it your way, you're just a few clicks away from having it. If you want to find a community that believes the exact same thing as you do, with one search, you can find a hundred people across the globe who believe the same exact thing you do. People aren't, uh, people aren't uh, with that one search, your computer will remember that, And it will pitch that truth back to you in a loop to remind you that that particular piece of data is true, to reinforce that particular belief. And so now that people aren't being uh, confined by their geography, they're able to skip out on the abrasiveness of human contact. So, for example, if I don't like sitting next to Sister Fufu in church because the way that she talks about politics annoys me, then I'll just leave. Because in every other community that I'm in, I find 100 people who, don't, who agree with me that Sister Fufu is really weird. And so because of that, I'm just going to go live in that world. That's where my identity will take place. I mean, honestly, I, I think that's where some of the most tremendous damage has, has kind of set in, in this ability to find communities outside of your geography who can't challenge you, see you on a rarely basis, but reinforce that belief in a loop to think that's how the only way that things work. Growth doesn't happen in those kind of communities. It happens in the places where you have to sit next to Sister Fufu and be challenged by her the way that, and at the same time that you're challenged by her, also be encouraged by her because she is great at loving and praising God in a way that you may never be. It's not in the shared things that we're refined. It's in the differences sometimes that we're refined all the better. So, I think as people are hitting the eject button on community, they're hitting the eject button on a level of growth that's possible. And so, learning to recapture that is an invitation to do that kind of thing. So, let me give some more reasons for that. I, this is my guess now at this point for reconst- uh in this particular generation now. So, again, um, with young people my age and around, these are some guesses as to why they're particularly deconstructing. They saw the failure of institutions elsewhere and attached that same level of failure to the church and institutions like it. They saw the economic crash of 2008. They saw mass shooting in schools. They saw the Catholic clergy scandal. They left school with a lot of college debt and limited job opportunities. And so when they sensed that institutions around them were failing, they attributed that same failure to other institutions that they thought could be trusted and things like that. So as we're processing their problems with the church, we're also processing their problems with other things around them, and help them understand that. Uh, second, with the rise of the internet, churches are no longer the only distribution point for spirituality. So i I work uh, part of my job is helping pastors and churches in transitions, which means navigating resumes and helping pastors move from one church to another, or in and out of our network and things like that. And so I was working with a national staffing agency. And I, I said, hey, tell me some of the things that you're identifying over the country. Because right now it feels like things are really weird in New England. We have seven churches that are open. Uh, I just got information our New York district has 22 positions that are open, 22 churches that are open, and Pendel is close to 20 churches that are open. And we have nine here. So this is, we're in a moment where things are pretty, so I said, hey, t- am, is it just me or is it, is it crazy for us in New England? She said, we're identifying this weird trend in mid-sized churches, large churches, and small churches. They said the mid-sized churches are suffering the most in this season because people are going to the smaller churches for a community and then going online for their worship and their, pa- and their discipleship and things like that. So they're finding the coolest pastor with skinnier jeans than mine, who's got more muscles and is awesome. And they're finding that pastor online and they're listening to their sermons. They're watching their worship team because they have 100 paid musicians that can do it really well. And so they're finding their community, their people in the small church, and they're getting their content online, or they're all moving to the big church. And so we're in this weird particular moment where, uh, as the Internet has expanded our access to spirituality, it's also helping our ability to build community. And so some people in that context of, uh, are jumping out in that way. Young people found access to gospel content without deep gospel community. Uh, So when the church became centralized on Sunday morning and things like that, they began to find access to Sunday performance elsewhere. So I say this as as the church navigated, what does it mean to be the church in America over the seasons and times and things like that? Uh, We found that in some of the churches that are uh, more professional driven, more stage ministry focused and things like that, it allowed people to be spectators instead of participators. And so when faith is tied, uh, we're learning the opposite, that when faith is dependent on your community, it changes, it makes it harder for you to leave, and it makes you realize different aspects of spirituality. So like I, that's why I was really intentional to pause last night and stop and recognize all the stories of people in this room who have helped me. It wasn't just the sermons and the worship that got me to where I am today. It's not that. It's the... The million and one conversations, the little things that each one of you did. And that's where I'm saying the, the, the reality of uh, when people, please don't hear this as a slam on any church, this idea of when you go to church to sit in the pew and that becomes the expectation to come and hear three songs in a talk, um, then you can get three songs in a talk anywhere. But when you're forced into a community where discipleship happens between 101 aunts and uncles who are helping you navigate Jesus... Um, That's irresistible to leave. That changes things. And so recognizing that when you can get access to three songs in a TED Talk anywhere, uh, the necessity of discipleship and community takes all the more value. uh, Global opportunities expose the weakness of our gospel presentations. Uh, Self-help can be found in a lot of different ways right now. I mean, there's so many people who are making millions of dollars on just being coaches and random stuff like that. I can tell you good advice too, man. Give me my millions. Come on, I'm ready. But as well, the, the things that make you feel like a good person, like you're a contributing member of society can be found in a lot of different ways right now. If that's the limit of what we do, if that's the limit of what our gospel offers is feel good and get the pat on the back, I did my job, then we can find that in so many different other ways, we can find that same kind of endorphin rush by, hey, I got to work out this morning. I read 38 books this week, right? There's different ways to check that box. But when our gospel is watered down to that, we become just one more option on a journey to being a better person instead of participating in the true story of the whole world. And so we haven't, uh, I think the church is now navigating the shift like, hey, uh, the church growth movement of earlier years and things like that. We've got some adjustments to make in response to that, um, which is pretty important to kind of navigate Lastly, the disillusionment with the church on media and its response to real life needs. Um, I've had some conversations with some students who, I mean, the the statement came out so bold that was, uh, they said, hey, there's other people who care more about justice than your church. There's other people who care more about mercy than your church. There's people who are doing grace better than your church. And I was like, whoa, that was... Our conversation regarding justice could be a real nuanced and different, defined conversation, but that that thought was in their head that somebody else is doing grace and justice and mercy better than you was a startling, which meant this person was disillusioned with our ability to care for those in need around us. Um, And so with that impression, I think these are some of the things that kind of have uh, walked people through this deconstruction process. They're saying, hey, are we really as good as we say that we are? Do we really believe the things that we say we do? Um, Russell Moore said this quote in a book. He says... uh, yeah, I'll paraphrase it. This idea that we're not we're not losing young people uh, because they don't believe in the things that the church believes. They think the church doesn't believe it for itself. That we say all these amazing teachings about Jesus, that we say he's the king and this and that. And so um so let's pause there for a minute. Those are kind of next steps. Do you think some of those are accurate? Where have you experienced those, those kind of steps of deconstruction of people saying, Hey, I've been disillusioned with church, I've been Uh, Looking for community elsewhere, does some of that stuff seem accurate?
5: I'd like to just say that in my own thoughts and in my own reflections on my own walk with Christianity, I've experienced all those things. I've felt the church hasn't lived up to what it's meant to. But it's only through a personal relationship with Christ and his working in my life to keep me in the game that I've stayed in the game. So if I'm feeling those kind of things, I can't even imagine what someone who does not have the power of Christ working in their life would be going through. And this is, I'm believing that every Christian, if they're honest, they don't wake up every morning and go, Yahoo, I'm a Christian, (laughs) that there's a struggle. I feel daily struggle. So mm. just being honest, putting that out there. So trying to say that if we are honest about that and deal with other people, I think we are more sensitive to where they're at.
1: Mm. Yeah. Can I ask a follow-up question? Cause I, think that's, I appreciate you sharing that. And then uh, what has helped you stay anchored like throughout your life? What has been the thing? So amidst those disillusioning moments, like what has been the thing that says, hey, I'm going to keep being a part of this, what's what's been the reinforcing?
5: A true relationship with Christ is the only answer I can have mm. because when I don't have an answer, I go to him. Mm. I've learned that I have no other source that has guided me in the way Christ has. I don't, I really believe that I came to a place in my life where I really kneeled at his cross <laughs> And surrendered my life to Him, mm. and I really believe that He answered that, and He embraced me, um, and it changed my whole perspective. It's not head knowledge; it's a change in a whole mm. direction of my life. You know, like I don't know how to explain yeah. it, like without being like Christian about it.
1: No, that's that's good though. <laughs> I think like what Pastor Fogel was saying, there was an experience there that convinced you that God is real and that.
5: And, there was, and it was beyond what I could explain. I can't explain it. When I try to explain it, it just sounds crazy because I'll mm. talk to people who have not had that kind of experience and they kind of think like I'm weird, you know. Yeah. It's like, and I thought people who had that experience before I did were weird. So, like, it's yeah. just the reality of it.
1: And that's the, that's the strange thing in this particular moment where I think going to some of those stats, like, the data seems to show that people are interested in spirituality. And so that's where I think the church is the answer. If we can set up these moments, that's where I think uh, we get to set up moments where people can experience the true God. And we think really intentionally about what those could look like, where someone could be captured, convinced beyond any reasonable, logical argument. Um, That really changes the game, which is really, really special.
2: Once again, when you look at Christianity across the board, how many people have a devotional life? Mm. How many experience Jesus day by day, moment by moment? This is what he promised my sheep know my voice. He wants to have a living, vital, talking relationship with us. How many people spend at least—and I know it's going—an hour a day, fifteen minutes, five minutes a day, maybe they, you know, you know, it's it's, it's like this, you know, <coughs> a real quick prayer on the way out the door. But once again, our relationship—if if if the amount of time that we spend with God is the amount of time you spend with your wife. You'd be living in the garage. So it, once again, is predicated on a relationship, on a daily devotional life that is the foundation.
1: Mm.
2: We're, 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 we're in tune with him. He speaks to us. We talk to him. And a lot of these things that we're going through right now, God will come and make himself real.
1: Yeah. And so how do we, the question will become in a minute, like how do we get someone to that space where it's a daily walk, it's a real relationship? Which is
0: Andrew, back when I was a youth pastor... My first youth service, all the girls had skirts on. My wife had its slacks on. That following day, the pastor came to my office and said, just so you notice, I don't have anything against it, but I think it's better for your wife maybe to wear a dress or a skirt wow. to wow. youth. I'm going back to legalism. Mm, mm. Legalism, people had to deconstruct from legalism mm. because... You had to wear your hair a certain length. Girls had to wear their hair long. I knew a lady who got her hair cut short. She was a youth president. And the pastor no longer said she could be the youth past, uh, the youth president because she got her hair cut short and looked like a male. We deconstructed from legalism. What I'm sensing today is... We have a sort of uh, legalism in our righteous attitudes Mm. that if people don't believe the way we believe or have the commitment that we have Mm -hmm. or walk how we walk, sometimes they get the attitude, well, your religion is just based on works, Mm. not on... And there is a commitment that we need to have. It boils down to... There's no Christian that's perfect. Mm. We're all gonna make mistakes. But we have to watch out from judgmental attitudes. The bottom line is we need humility because we're all sinners. Mm. We all need a personal relationship with Jesus. And we have to make sure that we are loving and that we show grace to those that maybe quote unquote don't meet up to our expectations mm. yeah, and as you say that I'm uh,
1: it's amazing that you recognize that we're in another process of deconstruction I'm people laughing I'm carrying a church history textbook in my bag right now because I'm after we're planning a church I've asked this hard question of like how did the first 300 years of church how did they spend their time energy and money and in those 300 years you find that every 50 years or so there's a reconstructing moment the first 50 years of the church Upon your salvation, you were baptized automatically right after. About 125 AD-ish, maybe even a little earlier than that, we start finding that uh, they started putting people into catechesis classes because people were coming in with mixed-up spiritualities. And so they realized that people were deconstructing that fast, 50 years after Jesus had gone, they're beginning to realize, or 80 years after Jesus had gone, they're figuring out, hey, this, we've got to really figure this out again. And so um, reconstruction, deconstruction seems to be a task of the church as we walk through culture. Um, but, yeah, so then the question, again, is how do we get somebody into – how do we introduce that concept of personal relationship in a way that makes
6: sense today? All right, so I think you already answered your own question last night in your message when you said about um, – uh, what was it? Hold on. About finding someone who is pressing on, mm. right? That's – we need more of of – we need more – there needs to be more mentorship and discipleship in the church. That's not on the on the duty of the pastors. It's on the duty of the seasoned Christians, of the ones who are pressing on, of the ones who do have that rich devotional life. How many seasoned Christians? How many rich people who are rich in their devotional life do look for, actively look for, other people to pour into within the church? Um, we just think, "Oh well, the pastor should be doing that, or the pastor's going to do that, so i don 't have to worry about it mm-hmm. um, but you you know you said yourself, find someone who 's pressing on, and then also help one help someone else press on so it goes both ways. every person in the church should have someone over them and someone under them it's it it just that 's how that 's how that process is going to affect change
1: yeah it 's strange we 've uh In seeking well-performed services, we made ministry something only professionals can do. And in doing so, we've we've taken away responsibility from the people that can also do it. And again, when you go back to the church history stuff, it's strange. It was random people that, that were doing the work of discipleship. I think of my own discipleship experience, it was a family of people who came to the dinner table and had conversations and asked hard questions. Um, and so to say, yeah, I think that's a critical piece of and that you're not going to get that online. You're not going to find that particular piece from the YouTuber that's making a great video. They're not going to have that level of investment in your life and so to think that, I think that's a critical place for capturing people?
3: Um, I was just thinking about two things in my own life and that I've noticed around me, I think, um, that have affected like deconstruction. Um, so tolerance, like the coexist campaign, which I definitely Googled while we were in here. It started in 2006. Wow. I was like, wow, I am really just, um, you know, deep. apparently I'm definitely a later millennial <laughs> because <of> Google. <laughs> but anyway, um, so coexist and, and that whole theory of like, oh, you know, you have to be tolerant of everyone's beliefs and then people become scared of sharing their beliefs because we have to, you know, all bring this thing together, whatever. Um, and then on top of that, I think just, like, a lack of um, gospel fluency. Um, I think in my own mm-hmm. life, when I went to college, I went to a Christian college, not not a of God. And so um, right from the get-go, I had a lot of people come at me about the Assemblies of God and that, you know, we were a denomination that's, like, very experience-oriented and emotions-oriented, but we really didn't know anything about the Bible, which I know that's not true. Um, but that really challenged me, and I remember mm-hmm. calling Pastor Jamal um, at that point and saying, like, I don't... Like, why am I a assemblies of God? Like, what, like, what's this all about? And, and I think that you could go two ways with that, right? When we, it, like, come to this, you know, what is it called? Fork in the road. Like, we can mm-hmm. choose to not believe anything, or we can choose to really, like, dive, dive hard into the word of the Lord. And, like, Pastor Fogel was saying, like, really have to, like, invest in our time with the Lord and understand why we believe what we believe. And so gospel fluency is super important um, in that, and not just going off the, what is it, the tail? Coattails, coattails yes. of our parents or grandparents yeah. or
1: whoever. So, so how do you create like an ownership, like a real yeah. engagement with this thing of being? hundred percent. Yeah, mm-hmm. amazing. I think, I
3: think
2: we all stand on the shoulders of the people that has gone before us, and I thank God for the people that I've been in relationship with. I think that's an important aspect of it, is that remembering that the people are around us. And then people will be standing on our shoulders in the years to come. And what are we going to leave behind? What's going to be our legacy to the next generation? And uh, that encompasses all that we've read, all that we've talked, all that we are. But to make that available to people you know, in, in our own personal life, in our own way, the way we react and the way we walk through things is so very important.
1: We'll spend a few minutes talking about how to translate that into a way that makes sense. So people who are in this next generation. Uh, okay. We'll do these two. And then I don't know if we wanted to cut for a break. Okay.
4: I was just going to say, uh, just add also to what everybody's saying, um, you know, about having the experience of God. And when we're challenged with these different things, for my own personal experience growing up in church, I grew up as somebody's God as well. And I had a great, wonderful church experience. I love um, uh, growing up in church, all the people who loved me. But I think that there were times that I had questions, or i felt man i don't i don 't have this experience of god i 'm not feeling something, and I think when you read some of these deconstruction stories, people feel um manipulated or guilted, or people are unequipped to answer those types of questions. Well, you just have to try harder mm-hmm. well you, you're holding on to sin that's that's your problem, and that may be well intentioned, or again, maybe it 's because we 're not equipped to answer those things, but so I think people who go through that deconstruction process that's how they feel is is well, you know what how much longer do I want to put up with this i'm trying I want to please the lord i'm i'm doing my best i'm giving it to God and man i don 't feel anything or whatever it may be um, and you know and that's coming that's uh, that's a perspective I have and i'm saying I had a great experience in church, and people loved me and invested in me um, and so so you know if maybe you didn't feel that way growing up in church, I could see that even being more difficult you know when you have questions or you feel like you don't have an experience like that.
7: Hey, uh, Pastor, thanks so much. Uh, I just want to uh, – I'm Tara's dad, but uh, I just want to decipher a couple things. Uh, uh, Pastor Jeff always says to me, thanks for visiting. I- I'm like a Catholic guy. I'm an old Catholic guy, and I-, I don't know if I'll ever divorce that from myself, but I've always – I've been in attendance here for probably – Ten, twelve years. So I, I'm like a duality, if you will. So you talk about uh, the word "people pleasing" is is one of those words that, that I picked up along the way. I, I'm also been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for a lot of years, and and if you go to an AA meeting, which I'd strongly recommend for anybody to do, it's quite fascinating. I've brought my kids, even my kids when they were real young, I, I brought them to meetings because there there's First of all, uh, their, their conception of God, higher power, as Tara and I were talking about this morning coming in here, HP, Harry Potter. Don't want to get into, like, cross-references and, and the reality of the world we live in, because there's so much that's amorphed with uh, nuances of what is God, you know what I mean? I got a friend, he's, like, he's talking about Buddhists, like, I was like, Brian Corgan, I said, I thought you were Irish Catholic or something, you know what I mean, like, but not to say, like find God, find in the church, find, like find in the in the church of Jesus Christ. I firmly believe that's why. But and, and when I go up to the podium sometimes, and I'll thank people, I'll say I thank Jesus Christ for bringing me here. You know, what I mean, for, for whatever re- people who they want to say is higher power. That's your vision of But that's this is me from my perspective, and I was saved in terms of. Uh, but uh, all the things about like growing up in the 60s, and my mother was into astrology, and I go into all boys Catholic high school in Patterson, New Jersey, at Don Bosco. Father, Father Vince, uh, my mother says uh, I'm Leo with Sagittarius rising, and I got my moon is retrograding, and Mercury and Var. She did my ephemeris. I was like, Mom, I don't think that's a little reaching it, you know? And Father Vince would say, we put our stock in Jesus, Jim. You know what I mean? You, you—that's paganism. We don't believe in that stuff. So take it elsewhere. You know, he would like shout me right now because he was went to school Gregorian College in Rome. And I think I'm kind of going in and out of places, but I, I think I firmly believe that uh, uh, you know, like what we find and, and this this craziness of the world and, and to find because everybody is searching for God and and in Jesus we found it here. And uh, and I firmly believe that. Uh, too many people uh, just define God and and the the way out, the wackiness, and people pleasing of like searching for everything. And and, and as Pastor Fogel said, you got to stand up and say, you prayed your, your God in your way. And and I think if you affirm that and you believe in that, and you and it passes on and it grows to people like like devotions. Amen. Thanks. Sure. No, say, I don't need to say anything more. If you need to keep going, yeah. Well, for time's sake, that's okay. Yeah. All right.
1: Yeah, so I think we've identified in these moments, and we'll talk about uh, maybe a way forward in our next uh, little bit of time together, but I hope we've also identified in this conversation people are hungry for something. That that verse in Ecclesiastes is actually true, that God has put eternity in our hearts. Every human being has a sense of a God-shaped hole that's there, and that they're waiting for something to fill it. And right now we're just finding people are stuffing it with different things. But I also want to just tip our appetite in the right direction. Maybe this is the best time to be in church that maybe this is the best opportunity, maybe this is the best time to stick around and dig in because we get to offer something to a world that's hungry right now, and they're telling us they're hungry, and we just got to think of how to fill that appetite. So let's take a break for...
0: Let's do a 10-minute break if you want fruit, um, bagel again, help yourself. Andrew, thank you so much. You know, the, people are hungry for Community. Part of the theory behind small groups is creating community. And what happens a lot of times is because we're in a consumer-oriented society, we always want to know what's in it for me. But it may not be what's in it for you, but it may be going to a small group because someone else there needs your community.